fake, fake, fakety fake. Hi, I'm Jody, and welcome to Imperial News, where I spend my whole week listening to the far-right podcast Rebel News, and then talk about barbecues with my friend Vienno, because Caitlin is busy this weekend, and we need to catch up. How are you, Vienno? I'm doing all right. How are you, Jody? I'm fine. It's a lazy Sunday as we're recording, uh, because as I said, we had to catch up, <laughs> and we're going to have a new episode we're going to record on Monday, but I figured we would record now. Caitlin couldn't. She's uh, dealing with family this weekend, and I'm not dealing with family this weekend. I'm hanging out with you. <laughs> yeah. Now, Vienna is here because Vienna happens to live in a housing co-op. And Caitlin and I, it's not that we were against housing co-ops or this idea of sharing within uh, communal spaces, but we were talking off the cuff and didn't have a full appreciation. <laughs> and so Vieno, who's a, a friend of mine in real life, but also a patron of the show, was like, hey, I live in a co-op and <laughs> some of the things you said uh, could have been better. So I thought I would bring Vieno on to help inform us. I'm just here to talk about cooperative living and stuff like that like just <laughs> how to live with other people part of it is a difficulty in imagining what a better world could look like and and how to set that up and then the other difficulty is like trying not to get like taken taken aback by sort of like similar policies being offered offered by capitalists when clearly their best interest is not the the communal interest in in separating those two things. But we'll we'll get into housing co-ops in a in a bit. For now, we're we're going to jump into the the normal segment, uh, the the imperial roundup, and then we'll we'll also talk about uh, barbecues if you're if you're ready and willing to hear about that. Woohoo! <laughs> so now the uh, imperial roundup. Hello, my rebels. Hello, my rebels. I'm a good boy. I'm a weirdo. This is what happened on the Rebel from November 23rd to November 27th. Ezra describes media party pandemic coverage as almost erotic. Have you seen any member of the media party who's opposed to the lockdown? I haven't. They're ecstatic about it. It's almost erotic the joy they seem to get from reporting on deaths. Meanwhile, he downplays Manitoba's hospital capacity problems by sharing conspiracy videos where the hospital parking lot is empty. The reason why the parking lot can be empty and capacity can still be a problem is that time of day matters for how busy a hospital can get. So if you film in the early morning or late evening, there are probably going to be empty parking spaces. But also, some people are treated for months with COVID, so you don't require busy parking lots every single day for it still to be a long-term problem. Even though Biden has won, Ezra still continues to talk about the Biden presidency in hypotheticals. Mark Morano comes on to complain about Biden's pick of John Kerry for the environment, suggesting that Biden is really a puppet to Bernie Sanders. This is, in many ways, the progressive left ideal president, Joe Biden, because he's a guy, he's puts up a gentle, unthreatening, grandfatherly old man image. At the same time, he's not vigorous, he's not engaged, he's not strong leader at all in any shape or form, but they get to run the show behind the scenes. And if you look back at his climate, particularly on climate, we had AOC, the Sunrise Movement, Bernie Sanders, 
John Kerry, all of them heavily involved in writing Biden's proposals, you know, for, for as candidate Biden. But if Bernie Sanders had that much power over Biden, how did he lose to him in the primaries? Ezra hyperfixates on an out-of-context clip of Jane Fonda. COVID is God's gift to the left. What Ezra leaves out of the clip is Jane immediately saying, This is a terrible thing to say. I mean, I think it was a very difficult thing to send down to us, but it has ripped the Band-Aid off who he is and what he stands for and what is being done to average people and working people in this country. We can see it now. People who couldn't see it before, you know, they see it now. And we have a chance to harness that anger and make a difference. The reality is COVID is exposing the flaws in our current system, particularly how little our political class cares about working class people. Ezra praises Donald Trump's Supreme Court picks after a ruling that allowed synagogues in New York to continue to be epicenters of COVID-19 spread in the name of religious liberty. Ezra constantly complains about left-wing activist judges overturning precedent, but Ezra makes clear he's totally in favor of overturning precedent when it comes to abolishing the secular state. And that is the week. You will notice we did a very tiny, tiny uh, Imperial Roundup segment. And that's in part because the whole week, almost the entire week, was solely dedicated to one man named Adam Skelly and his barbecue rebellion. Now, (laughs) we're going to cover the various aspects of what's happening here. But for the brief outline at the beginning, there was this guy named Adam Skelly and he owns a couple uh, Texas-style barbecue joints called Adamson's Barbecue. And he owns them, I think, three locations around Toronto. But one of them in particular, which is the one in Etobicoke, he refused to close when Toronto initiated its like recent lockdown restrictions. He didn't want to close it because he, he was harmed, I guess, by the first lockdown, and therefore made a huge scene. And what happened was you had a bunch of anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers, just all kinds of characters on the right start to show up in front of his barbecue place and protest, uh, specifically protesting the police. There was a scuffle between protesters and the police. And eventually Adam was, was walked out of his barbecue joint in handcuffs. He was held in prison, I think, for 30 day, or thirty hours and was released on certain bail conditions. And he's being fined upwards to like $100,000, something like that. So that, I think, I think that covers most of, uh, at least what has been highlighted in the media. Do you, do you have anything to add to that, Vieto? Or is that pretty much what you've heard as well about what's going on? I mean, there was the one open like neo-nazi that showed up in support (laughs) and like like bad enough that it is he was the head of the only white supremacist group that canada lists as a terrorist organization and he was there is this paul from yeah yeah i mean it's not just that he was like this head right paul from has been involved in almost every legal case that's been brought against a neo-nazi organization in canada to defend them uh 
legally. So him and you know, if if you want to have like some semblance of charity, like it's does Adam Skelly know everyone who's come to support him? But it is indicative that like, hey, if a neo-Nazi is showing up to shake your hand and offering legal advice, maybe that's a problem with what side you're on, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I think that it really like shows who the characters are who are attracted to this barbecue rebellion, yeah. as you call it. <laughs> I really hope that's in the textbooks. Yes, we'll we'll be talking about the barbecue rebellion for for years now mm-hmm. in the the Civil War of Ontario. That that is pretty much the opening frame of this thing. So now I'm going to go into a bit of the background because I decided to do some research into this character since the rebel is not going to do any of this research, right? The rebel show was pretty much a rah 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 go Adam fight the man kind of thing. So we're going to start just talking about how rebel ended up covering some of this stuff and some of the things that they said before we get into a further breakdown on who adam is and some of the background there of why he seems to be holding this rebellion they they try to portray because obviously it's rebel right they're going to try to pretend like we're neutral journalists and we're just showing up to cover just the facts because we're these big old neutral journalists david menzies And so David Menzies gets in there and of course he gets like right in the mess of it. So there was an instance where the police had barricaded the door and then Adam on the inside broke through a wall to get into his place and unlocked the front door. And then people started to cram in. It was a whole thing. And then David Menzies gets knocked over in the scuffle because he's right in the middle of it. Rather than being a neutral journalist, he's got to be right in the front of this whole thing. And then he brags about eating the brisket. Which is, it's like committing a crime. Is it committing a crime? I mean, he went into the business and purchased some brisket out of an illegally opened up restaurant in the middle of a global pandemic while he was supposed to be a neutral reporter. Oh, and Defiance was on the menu and man, did it smell good. I'd like to say taste good, but the fact is, boss, if I was going to bring you back that brisket you asked for, (laughs) that turkey, I'd still be in a lineup right now. The lineup went out the store. Black market (laughs) barbecue. (laughs) Then Ezra mocks the Toronto, Toronto Star reporter. So a Toronto Star reporter sent out a tweet saying that they refused to enter the barbecue building. Uh, while they were reporting because no one inside was wearing a mask. This is the star reporter. For obvious reasons, I'm not going inside with a bunch of unmasked people who don't believe in a pandemic. Well, why don't you put your mask on if it's such a bulletproof vest for you, lady? I mean, we've been over and over that, uh, of course, you don't wear a mask to protect yourself. You wear it to protect other people. And that's the whole point. So if other people are not wearing a mask, that's a problem for you because they could be projecting the virus into the air and then uh, increases the likelihood of you breathing it in. And and here's the thing is Ezra know, knows all this because he said as much back in March. Hang on. So put a mask on someone with symptoms. Okay, good idea. But the whole thing about this virus, why it's spreading so quickly, is that many people have no symptoms. They are asymptomatic, as they say, for up to two weeks after they get the virus. So they can seem very healthy, even though they're full of the virus, for up to two weeks. And, and while they're healthy... Um, healthy looking, but they actually have the virus, they're breathing on everyone for two weeks. Of course, put a mask on if you have the symptoms. But the whole point is that many people are carrying the virus 
without symptoms. That's why Taiwan makes everyone wear masks all the time. You don't really have to point out the hypocrisy here, but it's just stupid that Ezra is criticizing other reporters for not taking a risk like this when Ezra knew what the risks were back in March. So those are the main things that happens, happened in terms of their journalism. But then on top of just the journalism, Ezra has now set up, it's basically a huge fund that he's now going to pay for the legal fees for anyone who uh, is being kicked out of the business. And he says, he openly says they're willing to take on a thousand cases. And he actually tells people that they should start breaking the law and the rebel will support them. I have an important announcement and I'd be grateful if you help me share it with everyone you can. I am hiring a team of lawyers to defend every single Canadian who gets a lockdown ticket for not wearing a mask, for having a friend over, for letting kids play with each other, for hugging your grandmother, for opening your restaurant and trying to earn a living, for having a Christmas dinner, for living your life. If you get a ticket for any of that, come to me starting right now and continuing on through the Christmas season into the new year. Normally the words free lawyer don't go together, but that is what we're doing. If you get one of these outrageous unconstitutional lockdown tickets, don't pay it, don't plead guilty, don't do it. We're not gonna pay your fine, we will fight your fine. What have you got to lose? Oh my God. And here's the thing, like there's a part of me, it's like, I can be okay with a similar kind of positioning that someone could take. So for example, when the IHRA ruling, or not ruling, the uh, recent uh, addition to the bill that came forward, making IHRA the definition, working definition of anti-Semitism, I'm willing to say someone should break that law such that it gets challenged because I think it won't succeed uh, a charter challenge, right? Mm. That makes sense to me. But it's not clear that these uh, lockdown things that are happening due to COVID are unconstitutional in the Canadian context. And so he could be like, sure, he's going to help pay for these people's legal cases. But if all the legal cases fall through because it's not unconstitutional, then all these people are still going to have to pay all the fines that they incurred for breaking the law. Well, he'll, he'll, Mr. Levant will help them pay for all of that. Well, no, Mr. Levant is not going to help them pay for all of that. All he's going to pay for is the legal fees. Oh. So you, if you get stuck with a fine, you're still going to be screwed out of that. <laughs> Okay, so dream scenario is any constitutional challenge fails, they have to pay the fines. Those people all thought that Ezra was going to pay, and then they sue Ezra. (laughs) (laughs) He also set it up that he has discretion to take on whatever case that he wants. We reserve the right to not take every case, but it is my plan to literally fight 1,000 tickets across Canada. 1,000 one of them could be yours. So he's he's being selected there too. Like this whole thing seems weird. I mean, for one, where the hell are they getting this money to afford all these lawyers to? Clearly, they're getting some sort of influx of cash from some other outside organization. Mm-hmm. But here's the kicker, which is I find really interesting, is that Adamson's Barbecue is not taking any of Rebel's money. <laughs> and now what about the, the cost to you in terms of all these potential fines that can go up to $100,000, even a year in jail. Um, I think you said off camera to me, you're, you've already got pro bono legal representation. What are they telling you? 
I want to let you know we have offered legal assistance to Adam uh, Skelly, the boss of Adamson's. I think he has a lawyer. I, I uh, sent him a message directly through David. I wrote him an email offering our help for crowdfunding, for lawyering, whatever. I think he's got that part taken care of. I wonder if part of it is because Adamson has his own GoFundMe set up. He's making, I think it's over 300000 right now. Oh, my God. So there's a sense in which he doesn't even need the Rebels uh, legal money. That, that and because like the, the fine, I think, is only around 100000 So he's gotten way more than he needs. He's still going to fight this thing. But like, it's not like Adamson's hurting. But then there was this other place that was called Nobel Toys that they they were getting shut down as well because of the second lockdown and they refused to close and again david menzies went and and interviewed the guy from nobel toys and they both seemed supportive of each other but then the guy from nobel toys also declined taking their money (laughs) oh my god we feel this is so egregious and i know i made this offer uh, off camera and you declined as you know we have a portal called iwillopen.com it's where we would put you in touch with a top-notch criminal lawyer we would crowdfund your legal fees you politely declined i'm gonna make the offer again uh because i you know i hate to see a little guy going up against the system but um is there any reason uh you've declined and i think you also told me a story of someone was trying to s- stick a stack of $100 bills in your palm uh, on, on Saturday, and you declined that too. So why, why are you taking on this fight as a one-man gang? Uh, it's weird. Like, I think people just realize how, like, weird and risky it would be, I guess, to jump on this bandwagon with Rebel and have them pay their legal fees. So everyone who's, like, on the right and wants to take these risks and shut their business down are not shut their business down, but open their business up during a pandemic and get these fines, are not going to rebel to seek the legal aid. (laughs) And I find that very interesting. Even the right-wing grifters don't want rebels money. (laughs) It also comes out in their coverage that Adam is getting a whole bunch of other fines. So it turns out that Adams uh, has not licensed his restaurants yet. And you're supposed to do that. And he argues that uh, he's tried to do it and he's paid fines and it's all about like this paperwork thing. And Rebel covers this as if he's been treated unfairly. It's like the fines are happening only now that he's fighting the lockdown. But he's been receiving fines for the past four years that he's been open. It's not like the COVID thing happened, lockdown happened, and then all of a sudden he's getting these fines dumped on him. He's been receiving fines for this for a while now because he refuses to get a license. How is he still allowed to be open for four years without having licensed his restaurant? He's still getting health inspected. So that's good. I will yeah. say that okay. is pretty good. <laughs> uh, at least as far as I could tell, he's still getting health inspected. What? licensing has to do has more i think to do with zoning and other stuff so there's a bit of an issue about whether he was allowed to open where he opened due to like zoning laws and stuff like this but the fines are also not sufficient enough so i think the maximum fine he's received is something like three hundred dollars and like the licensing fee is more than that so he's almost like saving money by (laughs) by not licensing and I, I don't know 
how this all fully works, but it's clear that there is some sort of breakdown that people can flaunt this regulation and get away with it and not have it like hurt them in some capacity. Right. Mm -hmm. So this has led to some people go like, what is the point of these laws? If a company can just flaunt them so openly and not be shut down. Yeah. Like why, why bother doing this? If it's, and then not having fines that are like more than the licensing fees even. <laughs> yeah. No, and I I don't understand it. And I, you know, if I had a better understanding of restaurant regulations, maybe this would make more sense to me. Or maybe it's just inherently incoherent. <laughs> and uh, people should get on their city, Toronto City Hall and try to get them to change the regulations or fix this problem. I mean, it's similar to like, Recently, like Jeff Bezos was having like home renovations done in Seattle or wherever, and he racked up like $60,000 in parking tickets because he was just parking illegally on the street. And it's like, if your punishment is only a fine, that just means that it's illegal for rich people. Like, Yeah, exactly. Speaking of which, the other narrative that they try to push on the show is that Skelly is, is just a working class hero. How dare this working man be in a working class neighborhood feeding working class people? Ezra even frames the cops as they're working class cops. I don't know. It's interesting because police in their own way are working class. On their feet, physical danger. They deal with this stuff. In a way, I mean, garbage men are one of the toughest jobs in the world. In a way, policemen, they have to deal with garbage situations sometimes things that we would so they have a real working class ethos about them and they're being pitted by their uh, political masters against other blue collar guys working hard i wonder what those cops were thinking when they were taken off the gun crime beat the gang land beat and put on the shut down the restaurant beat it must i hope it rubbed them the wrong way and i have to say that that is a super racist framing on Ezra's part. As if it's it's the gang crime beat. He doesn't call it the working class crime beat. But it's also like, oh, the police should be over there policing the black neighborhoods. But instead, they're over here policing the hardworking white people. Is kind of what I'm getting from what Ezra is saying here. The same framing as, you know, National Socialist German Workers Party. Like, yeah, they are white working class people and they should be represented by the white working class type of stuff. And I wonder why Paul Frum is showing up. Yeah. (laughs) The question is, to what extent is this Adam Skelly person who owns multiple businesses, and what to what extent is he working class? Well, from what I can understand, the first property he owned for his Adamson barbecue was purchased by his father. Of course. His father happens to be someone who owns a heating supply company, or at least did own a heating supply company, which recently uh, merged with another company for tons of money. So his dad has a lot of money. His dad is also a philanthropist, uh, starting a bunch of charities around mental health after uh, their son, Adam's brother, died uh, through issues involving schizophrenia. And David Skelly was awarded the Sovereign's Medal for Volunteers from the Governor General in 2015. So he's big enough, has donated enough that he was even recognized by the Governor General of Canada. So his his dad has a ton of money. 
and was able to set up this thing for Adam to get his his thing going, almost like Donald Trump getting a million dollar loan, right? Mm -hmm. And it's this idea that to frame people who inherited wealth as working class is very weird, especially when they they were given more opportunities given that wealth. And it's also worth noting that Adam has complained over and over again about any support coming from the government, calling it a handout. So he called the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit a government handout and that we shouldn't be accepting any government handouts. Yet meanwhile, he was given a handout from his dad to start a company, and that is perfectly okay. I really wonder how bad it, how badly he treats his workers. Like, Oh, you want to know how bad he treats his workers? <laughs> oh, great. We know. Well, we don't have a ton of details, but he, he did post something angrily near the start of the lockdowns, saying that uh, some some of his workers had quit within the uh, back end, so like dishwashing and stuff like this. And he called them like people looking for a handout and was like, he's like, if you're tired of receiving handouts, you could come work for me for 16 bucks an hour to like wash the dishes or whatever. Like, And he was being very rude about it. And people were like, sounds like you treat your workers like shit. <laughs> If they're so expendable to, and you're like forcing them to work during a pandemic. So, I mean, that's something uh, rumors have been circulating because of that, but I'm not going to go into too much detail about to what extent he treats his workers poorly, but you know, the, there's uh hints along the way. <laughs> yeah. And so this leaves me with, with a question, which is why is this person doing this? <laughs> why is Adam Skelly? taking the charge and fighting back. I mean, it sounds like he's making more money than he would be if you were open. Like, Yes. And this in some ways has been documented. So there were several blog Toronto posts that, uh, so blog TO for people who don't know is a blog out of Toronto. And they've posted a lot about Adam's barbecue, like over his history. And you could sort of track how things have changed over the, the months of this pandemic. So during the first lockdown, there was an article posted on blog TO where his online orders were at the same level as before, and he was not hurting. So it was sort of like a, a glowing sort of review of like, Hey, look, the first lockdown has come and we managed to shift over to online stuff fairly easily. And curbside pickup is like working really well. Everything seems to be fine. So he didn't even close down. Like he was still open and like still selling food the whole time and doing fine. Back in March and early April, he was doing fine, apparently. Oh, my God. Then after a while, so starting near mid to late April, there another article came out saying that like people are started tightening their budgets and they're not buying uh, his food. And so... It, as much as they were before. So now sales are starting to dip mm -hmm. near the end of May, April, sorry. And the interesting thing is Rebel tried, Ezra tried to frame this as working class food, but this is like high end brisket. Like it's pretty expensive. So you can imagine that like people during a global pandemic are losing their jobs and maybe going, maybe I shouldn't be spending 20 to $30 on lunch, you know? 
<laughs> well, and also like April, May, like that's the snow is off the ground. If you are wealthy enough to be ordering a twenty or thirty dollar lunch most days, then chances are you probably have a barbecue and can you are stuck at home anyway, so you can maybe make it yourself. Yeah. Like because it's still pandemic time is out there as well, right? Yeah. So then what happens? So this is an article where he, he's talking about how, okay, so things have started to tighten, but he, he also says that he's still able to pay his staff. And so everything is still kind of fine, even though profits have gone down. But then at the end of April, Adam started taking to so- social media, using the Adamson's Barbecue account to promote conspiracy theories regarding COVID. Oh my God. And he was called out. And while he was being called out, Adams started throwing around the R word slur at people, calling them R word for not understanding that COVID is a huge hoax. Hmm. Then business really started to decline. And he apologized and admitted that his outbursts were hurting his business. <laughs> Interesting. That kind of like stopped for a bit. And everything sort of like calmed down for a while. Then all of a sudden, the second lockdowns are coming. And then he takes this giant stand with more conspiracy theories. I don't have enough time. And you guys don't want to watch a 15 minute long video of me going on about this. But I'm going to start with just one point. We're using PCR tests with a cycle threshold of over 40 to drive hysteria around case counts. Now, if we go past a certain case count per 100,000, or if we go past 2.5% positivity rate, we are in the red zone, and the whole province or region is locked down. Bars, restaurants, and gyms have to close. If you guys understand what's going on with these PCR tests and their cycle thresholds, you know that they're picking up all sorts of other stuff that's not COVID, bacterial infections, other coronaviruses, including the common cold, fragments from the flu shot. Now, what's interesting is it seemingly came out of nowhere for people who weren't following the story. Just seemed like some asshole who didn't want to shut down it for a second time. But it's clear like there was more to this story bubbling under the surface. And it's left me going, like, why? Like, it seems to me that there's two sort of branches to this. One is that, as you pointed out, it could be that he was struggling and this was a way of increasing revenue at a time when revenue was down. Or he could have been a true believer. Could be a bit of both. Or a bit of both. Yeah. I Like, I sounds pretty opportunistic to me. Like, he can figure out how to stay open without having paid his licensing fees pretty easily. He can probably figure out like, oh, I'm not making as much money as before. Might as well see what I can do. Especially like, you know, this is post Kyle Rittenhouse and post like, it's so easy to make like a right wing martyr when a literal like mass shooter is able to be one. Like, Yeah. Another theory that I've seen posted around is that He's really trying to brand himself as like a Texas barbecue connoisseur by appealing to this like pro-freedom, pro-patriot kind of like, look at me standing up for the American Constitution in Canada kind of nonsense. And part of me is like, 
I could I actually could see that being a thing, but at the same time. <laughs> that is the funniest like concept though. <laughs> like like he's trying to get his brand authenticity so right that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he doesn't actually believe in it, but he's just like going for it. The branding opportunity. The the last thing in terms of Ezra's coverage of what's happening is that Ezra tries to point out a kind of hypocrisy. And I actually agree with Ezra on at least the surface level of his criticism here, which is that at the same time that all these businesses are being shut down, these small businesses, and I mean, sure, let's just say that what's happening to Adam Skelly is a small business being shut down. At the same time, companies like Walmart get to remain open. Now, one of the arguments is that Walmart provides some essential goods. But as Ezra points out, they're not sectioning off some of the other areas, like the toy areas or, I don't know, outdoor sports materials or something, right? So... Mm -hmm. Even though they sell food, other portions of the store are being remained open where people won't be socially distancing over there either, right? And so the argument is like, why is it that Walmart gets to remain open and people can buy toys there, but they can't say buy toys from that Noble store or they can buy like food at Walmart, but they can't buy food at Adam Skelly's barbecue place. And I agree, there's some level of hypocrisy there, but I'm curious what you have to say there. The, like, wild part is, though, like, they can all stay open and have, like, pickup and stuff like that, right? Or, you know, you show up and you wait for your order to be done or whatever. And, like, even with retail places, like, you could probably still, especially, like, in a smaller place, which, like, most small businesses aren't, like, these huge warehouses like Walmart are, or, like, Walmarts are, you could probably, you know have appointments or something like that where like somebody comes in for like 15 or 20 minutes and you could probably still be open with like a certain number of people in or like like there are ways around it if you wanted to be like not shitty you know as i said it could be something like selling a high-end brisket might be a little bit harder given the circumstances considering people tightening their budgets that makes complete sense to me And so it's like, maybe some businesses will be hurt more. But then here's the thing is, I've been saying all along that we should have financial support for these things. We should be having financial supports for everyone. But of course, that's the thing that people like Adam Skelly say they don't want. They don't want a government handout. They just want to have their own idea of freedom, which is that I get to do whatever the hell I want and remain open during a global pandemic. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. Public health matters more than your feelings about wanting to stay open, you know? The other thing that annoys me with Ezra's, like, point to hypocrisy here is that Ezra's only solution seems to be to just let every store open. And it's like, again, we should be finding ways to financially incentivize people to shut down. And, And the thing is, like, we had the perfect opportunity to brand this in a way, which is that this pandemic is no one's fault. And therefore, you we could have had a really good campaign to get people to understand that given that this is no one's fault, we're going to use some of our budget, 
our government's budget to help out people who are going to be hurt by this pandemic. But instead, we've like hummed and hawed about like how to implement it and how to means test it and all this stuff when it's like we could have helped out our own society just by paying people to stay home. And the means testing is the biggest thing. Like if we had had a universal benefit, then I think that everybody would be chill. And also maybe everybody would have enough money to buy some brisket? weird shitty right wing brisket. Yeah. <laughs> like the solution is so obvious and yet nobody in government is willing to be like, Hey, maybe we should just like, you know, order rent freezes and give people money so that they're able to survive. And that, so when this is over, the economy will exist again because people won't be hoarding what little money that they have left. Instead, now we have a grifting opportunity for a child born into a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And while the rest of us have to deal with the fact of evictions and low employment, bills piling up, it's going to be crazy. And uh, it is what it is. And he's going to whine and complain. And it's frustrating. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's incredibly frustrating. Now, I wanted to round this conversation out with, uh, you had already mentioned Paul from, but there was a few other sort of uh, unique characters involved in this. One of them is uh, Chris Sky or Chris Sakosha, or I can never pronounce his last name. He's been one who sort of like started these anti-lockdown, anti-mask stuff back in April or May. And he he was there to help bust in the door and all that fun stuff. And he's someone who has since has uh, done some shows with uh, David Icke, who's, uh, who is famous for contributing to the idea that like the global elite are really just like reptilians in disguise. And there's also a lot of anti-Semitism in David Icke's theories. So that's fun. So you got Paul Frum and Chris Sakosha, who hangs out with uh, other anti-Semites. And then you have Randy Hillier, who is an MPP, but he was kicked out of the progressive conservatives for insulting families with children of autism. Uh, families uh, who have children with autism, he insulted them and was kicked out of the progressive conservatives and is now an independent uh, MPP who goes around uh, saying that COVID isn't real. And he got charged and Ezra claims that he was charged because he's he's an opposition politician. <laughs> when it's like, no, he wasn't just charged because he's an opposition politician. He was charged because he was doing something illegal. And that's how this works. <laughs> I wonder what crimes MPPs are allowed to commit before they get kicked out of legislature. Ezra's never going to say, like, for example, there was a recent liberal MP who was charged with, I, I want to say it was domestic abuse. But I'm not positive. So anyways, there was... I think it was assault. It was assault. Ezra covered it and was never like, the only reason this liberal politician is being charged is because the opposition is attacking him or something. <laughs> it's like, that is a legitimate use of legal force. But of course, when Randy Hillier gets charged, it's obviously some conspiracy. I want to say as well, I think this morning I woke up to a tweet from Randy Hillier suggesting that his son was recently tased at a bar last night for not wearing a mask in a pub. Oh my god. <laughs> I kind of want to see like how that altercation happened. And of course like Hillier spinned it in like a very positive light like his son was like just protecting a friend who was exempt or something like this from wearing the mask. 
to be honest, I, I didn't fully look into it. I don't know if evidence has come out that he indeed was tased, but Randy Hillier is claiming that his son was tased last night. So I guess it runs in the family. <laughs> I also am curious about how much, how many of these beliefs Randy Hilliard had before he got kicked out of the PCs and like is now saying the quiet part out loud. Or if like getting kicked out of the PCs was like, hmm, I need to find a new political home. <laughs> and radicalized himself somehow. Yeah, I mean, it could have been that he was already trending in that direction, but then being kicked out allowed him to let the let the freak flag fly, you know? Yeah. And so he's he's definitely flying that flag now. <laughs> oh, he is. Now we're going to talk about what we have you on to talk about in the first place, Fiona. <laughs> we did a segment last week that was on the Great Reset. And part of the conspiracy of the Great Reset is that the World Economic Forum is going to make us live in a world without property. And I framed it in terms of, you know, th there's an aspect of that that I can get behind, which is that I am a socialist. And if we can have a sort of like uh, a world <laughs> where there's no uh, of private property in, in the terms of capitalist exploitation, I'm down with it. But we sort of branched off with that and, and spoke uh, loosely on our own thoughts about how something like this might or might not work. And neither Caitlin or I, or I live in a co-op or know what that is like to live in a co-op. <laughs> And so we might have said things that, uh, you know, to be honest, we were talking out of our ass. That's fine. <laughs> but it turns out Vieto, patron of the show, my friend, lives in a co-op and I didn't even know it. So I was hoping if you could start by just describing what that entails. What does it mean to live in a co-op and how is that different than living in your typical apartment complex? The co-op that I live in is a little bit different because it's quite small in comparison to a lot of others um but the way that we function is that we have our general members which is everybody that lives in the co-op and you become a member by moving in effectively and then we have a elected board of directors which for us is only six people because we're a quite small building so we have an election every two years or every year but uh only half of the board members switch over um and we have a president a vice president and a secretary treasurer and they're the ones who are like signing authorities do they have to live in the building to run for these positions then yeah so they have to be co-op members basically like they have a little bit extra responsibility compared to everybody else but every co-op member is responsible at some level for some manner of maintaining the building so like there will be some members who like vacuum the stairs some people who like take out the garbage and recycling every week or i do like the veggie garden and the bird feeder and um we buy christmas cards or birthday cards and a small little gift certificate for everybody for their birthday just as like a cute little community thing and so like people are responsible for different things in order to maintain the good functioning of the building what do you do in places of compliance? Like, say, if someone just is like, fuck it, I'm not going to sweep the hall. 
<laughs> so one of the like main things that you need in order to found a housing co-op is a set of bylaws. And so these are bylaws that the co-op membership has all agreed to upon moving in or upon founding the co-op. Um, and so they're alterable by the board of directors, and then they have to go to the annual general meeting in order to get like completely accepted by the general membership. But it's kind of like, uh, because we are only paying for the upkeep of the building, we're not paying for anybody's profit, we're not paying for, you know, anything that is a like, most functions of capitalism, like there is no, you know, profit making, there is no capital involved our rent is sort of capped at 80 percent of the market rate which is very nice considering how bad rent prices are these days so does all your rent go into these extra expenses or like not extra expenses but like property tax and stuff like that that you would have to pay for the building anyways rather than going into the hands of some profit or or does it in like i guess it's it contributes to the purchasing of things like the upkeep of the vegetable garden in some capacity or like new soil or something. Yes to all of that. Uh, the rent goes towards basically anything that the building needs. Before I moved in, there was a time where like rents were kept artificially low and there wasn't enough money to really maintain the building to a like good level. And so um, like a year or two before I moved in, that changed and new people moved in and they wanted to make sure that the building could get better upkeep. And so the rent got raised a little bit. Again, democratically, we vote on how much it's going to go up every year. Generally, it's by inflation and nothing more. And any excess money basically is savings for if something goes wrong. So, you know, the boiler broke last year and we had money to fix it because we keep money aside for emergencies and stuff like that that was the one thing when i was listening to you describe it to me over discord was i was immediately like this sounds awesome <laughs> and in part because like i you know i'm a big union fan and so it's the idea of having the the democracy aspect that's like really nice and like realizing when you can do things like increase rent because the community realizes a need that like raising the rent can help go to you know as opposed to just raising the rent to line the pockets of somebody yeah and, and i thought like yeah i i thought that was like a really neat concept so any money that you spend on like personally that you spend on something from that is like about the building is generally able to be refunded so like you were talking about like the veggie garden yeah like the building pays for the soil the building pays for the seeds or the plants or you know the fencing or whatever else that i need similarly like if a like window gets smashed or something like that would be a higher expense especially because we're an older building and there's issues around that um but if it's an emergency it's going to get fixed if it's something that is more like oh it would be nice to do this for people's buildings um then it'll have to go through the board if it's an expensive more than $300. Pretty much anything would get board approval so long as it's not like obscene or like just kind of not necessary, but like, you know. I want to turn my living room into a pool. Yeah, like that wouldn't be covered, <laughs> but like, 
you know, oh, you want to change your like light fixture or you want to like paint your living room type of thing, generally those things will be covered. And it's just that this, you know, level of democratic cooperation and like that kind of stuff is functional under a, you know, we're still dictated to by the market. We're still dictated to by, you know, inflation and having to purchase things and all of those other things that that's possible now is just kind of a like, in my mind, very much a proof of like what could be possible under a system where nothing is, you know, dominated by the needs of profit. Part of the reason why I wanted to bring you on was to just, you know, spark the imagination of others that this <laughs> this is an actual possibility, you know? Yeah. So like here, for example, we just had our 40th anniversary in April and we were hoping to have a celebration, which obviously didn't happen um, because COVID and all. But the co-op was founded by this like small group of people in the 80s. And I think that the building only had six units then, and they eventually like a seventh unit was added, which is where I live. They these people would basically like go around to different buildings in southern Ontario and federate them into cooperative structures. And then they would help set up a group of bylaws and get the basic like board and membership set up and like have everybody on board with what was going on. And then would just move on to another building and do the same thing there. Personally, like, don't have experience setting up co-ops, but there are um, every cooperative housing setup in Canada is uh, federated with the uh, Canadian Housing Co-op Federation of Canada. No, I said Canada twice, but um, <laughs> Housing Co-op Federation of Canada, I think. We'll throw all the links to those in the uh, show notes for anyone who's interested in starting a co-op. Yeah. And they have a lot of like, you know, if we were to have issues around bylaws or a conflict in the building, we could reach out to the Housing Co-op Federation and they would send in possibly like an arbitrator or they would have assistance with like writing bylaws and stuff like that because there is this massive resources resource of you know, all of the different co-ops that have had similar issues or similar whatevers that are possible to learn from. But again, like it's it's a way of imagining a different form of living. Rosa Luxemburg wrote about co-ops in like the 1910s. And I remembered that today before we went on this call and um, went back and like read the quote again, just so that I could have it fresh in my mind. But she talked about how cooperatives are these you know sites of social organization that exist within a capitalist system but are incapable of overcoming it on their own because ultimately they are still you know victims of the domination of the market they're still they still exist at the like under struggle with the market and like can only kind of exist in a means of like trying to quietly hide from it almost but are incapable on their own of overcoming it as a like dominating structure. But it is a way of, as you said, reimagining it. Yeah, exactly. Like it's a, it is a thing that can be done now that is still possible to like help us inform the future. It is a mean, it is like a different means of living than renting would be than 
living in, you know, a one family home would be because it is ultimately reliant on other people as our lives kind of really are and should be. And I will say in contrast with the the conversation that Caitlin and I had, it's, it's better. I mean, it's good to have these more left-wing socialist imaginations rather than getting our imagination of what a sharing economy could look like from the world da- economic forum in Davos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so it's, it's good to have you on to, to sort of frame that, uh, frame it in that way, which is something that Caitlin and I couldn't bring to the table. So uh, is there anything else that Caitlin and I might have uh, missed in our discussion about co-ops or are we pretty good? Have we convinced everyone now co-ops are are the thing? Go out there and start your own housing (laughs) co-op. I I just had pulled up the, um, what the uh, Housing Co-op Federation of Canada calls the co-op principles for housing co-ops, which is a reworking of the international co-op movements, basically bylaws for like, or concepts for what a co-op should represent. So they have seven different like principles. And the first one is voluntary and open membership, basically meaning that like, it is open to any possible person for being a member without discrimination. Uh, The second is democratic control. So the co-ops are, must be controlled by their members. Uh, the third is member economic participation. So everybody pays into the co-op and the co-op, uh, especially in the case of housing co-ops, doesn't pay like a return on what members pay into it. Instead, it's set aside to maintain the co-op for the future. Uh, the fourth is autonomy and independence. So the co-ops are meant to be independent associations of the individual members they're not supposed to kind of be under any other organization's control they are entirely the purview of their membership the fifth is education training and information so they're supposed to uh, co-ops are supposed to make sure that their members and their directors and uh, as well as the general public are aware of what cooperative life is like The sixth is cooperation among cooperatives. So that's, you know, the Housing Co-op Federation that is organizing with maybe like, oh, dang, I'm blanking on the word, but like other co-ops in the community that aren't housing co-ops. And then the seventh is concern for the community. So it's supposed to be building a community both within and without the co-op. Like it's supposed to be both an internal community and also building a better community in the area where you exist i think that those kind of principles are a very good way of like looking at how democratic futures can like interact with each other and the world as a like kind of participant controlled organization but also aware that they are existing within a world and community and i guess now you can go back to your board and tell them that you fulfilled the fifth principle which is to educate the public <laughs> yeah <laughs> well thank you vienna yeah no problem and uh you can hear vienna as well who's been participating in our uh online streams every friday at 8 p.m eastern standard time as well so i want to end on just acknowledging that today is the national day of remembrance and action on violence against women 31 years ago, 14 women were murdered at Ecole Polytechnique in Montreal because they were women. 
one of the reasons we do this show is to combat the violent anti-feminism that is projected by the far right, including Ezra Levant and his rebel colleagues, and we will continue, and always will be, a feminist podcast. So I thought that was worth mentioning before we close out. Yeah. And if you enjoy or support what we do, please give us a few bucks over on patreon.com slash imperial news. If you want to stay informed about what we are doing, you can also find us on Twitter at Imperial News of a Z. We have a private Facebook group called Imperial News. We also have a Discord set up and we'll be doing Twitch. Twitch? I was saying that funny. And we'll be doing Twitch streams every Friday at 8 p.m. You can find all the links to our social media stuff in the show notes. Lastly, you can email us any questions at imperial.fake.news at gmail.com. Special thanks to my friend Mason Tickle for the transition beats. You can find his work at stridem.bandcamp.com. Thanks again to Vienno for doing the show today. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening. And remember, the only good handouts are daddy's handouts. Ugh. <laughs> Albumia, Albumia, how lovely are your wheat fields. just happens to be stomping on his like floor of his room go stomp elsewhere <laughs> i hope that part is in yeah. <laughs>